Welcome everyone to the uh, uh, our panel on uh, looking at COVID-19 in Africa, the effects on the, of the pandemic on and the questions of global politics. I'm uh, in geopolitics in particular. I'm uh, Chris Alden, Professor of International Relations, uh, the Department of International Relations at the LSE. I also hold a post at the LSE Ideas. Um, and I'm today joined by a very distinguished group of speakers on um, the question who will help me address this question and, and will pick their brains uh, as to what the impact of the, the pandemic is on Africa, how Africa responds, and in particular, the focus being on geopolitics. Um, our speakers uh, will, will, are, are the following, uh, Professor Aziz Malakias, uh, who's a uh, professor and chair of the Department of Global Studies and Maritime Affairs at California State University and an expert on Angola, uh, uh, amongst other things. Um, uh, the second speaker will be in panelist would be uh, will be Dr. Folishara Soleil. Uh, she's a senior research associate in international relations at Oxford University. Again, she's done work on BRICS, on uh, global politics and the role of China. Um, and uh, finally, Elizabeth Sederopoulos, who's the chief uh, executive officer of uh, chief chief exec at uh, the South African Institute of International Affairs. Uh, um, has worked extensively on development policy, on South African foreign policy, um, and uh, a number of issues that connected to the geopolitics side. Um, so this is a, a great opportunity for us to, to open up the issue of, of how COVID-19 matters to Africa. And I think that let me start with one, with, with a few statements and then turn to our panelists. Uh, COVID-19 has has um, had a global impact uh, of unprecedented uh, character and, and uh, 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 quality. Um, different states, different regions have responded differently to the, to the pandemic. Uh, much of what has been discussed has been focused around public health policy and, and the, the natural concerns about that impact. But in fact, I think what we'd like to do today is uh, link that to some broader questions, the, the geopolitics of uh, this, the, the impact on, on African states as actors within their regional systems and within their, the, the global system at large. So our, ours is a, an effort here to step back a little, a little bit uh, uh, while still embedded in the, some of the day-to-day -day of, of the pandemic as it affects African uh, societies and states, but to step back and reflect from an international relations perspective, what exactly are the trends that we see emerging uh, with, uh, with respect to African concerns uh, in, in, uh, um, in the international system. So having said that, I've posed uh, a general uh, question to each of the, the speakers, um, and I would like uh, uh, to, to ask uh, uh, Professor uh, Malakias uh, to, to respond, and each of you in turn to respond. How, how is COVID-19, how is the pandemic affecting African relations with the great powers, with China, with the United States? with Europe. We don't hear much about Europe in this context of, of Africa, or less, perhaps. Anyway, if I can turn it over to, to Professor Malakias. Sure, Chris. Uh, thank you very much, and hello, everybody. 
so to your question, first of all, it's a very, very important question. Uh, let me start by contextualizing these relationships uh, just a little bit. Uh, starting with China, uh, the China-Africa China, uh, uh, relations. Uh, we must say, first of all, that uh, China has been a very solid uh, long-term partner uh, of Africa. Uh, China, if we look back a few decades, uh, has supported the struggles for liberation on the continent uh, against Western colonial oppression and is currently supporting uh, African development efforts in very, very tangible ways. Uh, we are all aware of the uh, of the untold billions that uh, uh, China has invested in Africa since uh, emerging as a global power, uh, has invested uh, especially in natural resources, uh, and is underwriting just massive infrastructure projects all across uh, the continent. Uh, all of us who have visited Africa in recent years uh, could see just massive construction projects going on uh, around uh, the continent. Uh, and uh, China has also been able to kind of woo uh, Africa's uh, leaders. Uh, this, uh, one must say, has very much been a two-way street. Uh, China uh, has also been a major beneficiary uh, of this relationship. Uh, again, if we go back uh, a few decades, uh, we can note that the PRC owes uh, its membership uh, uh, in the United Nations uh, to the support of African states. And if we analyze uh, carefully the Chinese economic miracle, uh, we'll see that it was fueled to a large degree uh, by African uh, resources. Uh, and just one quick final point, uh, Chinese leadership in uh, multi multilateral institutions, uh, I, in my view, is a reality uh, because of the support uh, of African uh, states. So I think that uh, COVID-19 uh, will, will bring, in fact, uh, Africa uh, and China together. Yes, there are some uh, issues in this relationship. Uh, there are issues of uh, uh, discrimination against Africans in China. Uh, there's, uh, and this has generated a tremendous amount of... Uh, ill feelings on the continent. But overall, I believe that this relationship long-term will remain solid. Uh, one or two words about the relationship between Africa and the United States. It's, a very, it's always been a very complex relationship, this between the United States and Africa. We all know that uh, many Africans have, uh, many Americans, I should say, have African roots. Uh, but that relationship uh, between the United States and Africa, if you look at it, especially from an African perspective, uh, you'll see that the United States is regarded as an unreliable partner. An unreliable partner who was mostly on the wrong side of the African liberation uh, struggles. Also, uh, Africa did not particularly like the, uh, the, the fact that uh, the United States basically disengaged uh, from the continent uh, after the end of the Cold War. So uh, COVID-19, uh, how is it in complicating even more uh, this uh, triangular uh, relationship? Uh, there's, a, there's a narrative here in the United States uh, 
that Beijing is to blame for the spread of uh, COVID-19. And the United States is using this narrative uh, basically for two purposes, uh, for two audiences. One is the internal audience, of course, and the other one is the external audience, including Africa, basically signaling to Africa uh, that uh, Beijing, China is responsible for this global pandemic, uh, and therefore there may be time for the for African countries to reassess uh, their very close relationship uh, with uh, with uh, China. Uh, Africa's support uh, is once again vital for China because China is pushing a counter narrative. Uh, that after beating uh, the virus, uh, it, it is now a leader, so to say, uh, in global health, uh, and Africa uh, should continue to partner uh, with China uh, to earn, uh, to accrue all the benefits as in the past. One quick comment about Europe. Uh, where is Europe? Well, Europe is, is hardly being seen um, on when, when it comes to this debate on COVID-19, especially as far as international relations are concerned, uh, the geopolitics of it, uh, because uh, Europe has some very, very major internal concerns, internal challenges. Uh, if you look at the UK, we've been following, if you look at uh, Italy and other countries, uh, the concerns are internal. It's not necessarily looking uh, to, to make a mark in the geopolitics of international relations at this point. And also, uh, finally, uh, Europe is really no longer uh, a dominant uh, global power. Uh, that space, of course, is being left uh, to uh, China and to the United States. So, uh, this, Chris, are some of my initial comments on this uh, question. Thank you. Right. Thank you. So you see it pulling this, uh, the aftermath is about pulling Africa and China together. The U.S. will, the unreliability will factor will be enhanced in, in some, the, the, the vision of that. And then Europe is, is uh, an absent actor in this respect in the geopolitics side. Thank you very much. Um, could I talk to Dr. Soleil, please, uh, and ask if you could respond to the same question? Thank you, Chris. Thank you, and thank you for having me uh, on this on this panel. Um, I think Aziz set the context, and he also a bit, bit of the historical context of uh, Africa's relations with uh, with China, with uh, the U.S. and and with Europe. So specifically on the COVID-19 pandemic and how it is affecting Africa's relations with the great powers. I think it's important um, to look at it at various levels. So it it depends on the type and the level of relations we talk about. So first, uh, when we look at humanitarian assistance and what happened um, right after uh, the pandemic, there seems to be a competition you know, among great powers, especially China and the U.S. in providing assistance to African countries. And China has carried out a very visible uh, and active humanitarian assistance. You know, it, it has been dubbed as you know, masks diplomacy, corona diplomacy, providing uh, you know, equipment, PPEs, medical teams, uh, and 
all of this was channeled both via traditional state actors, but also via non-traditional actors in um, China's development assistance to Africa. I'm talking about philanthropies, you know, the, the Jack Ma and the Alibaba Foundation. Um, so on that level, you know, it, it, there's already um, some competition because the U.S. also provided aid, uh, more financial I would say, uh, also uh, in terms of equipment, but it hasn't been as organized uh, in terms of uh, visibility and using social media uh, as China did. Another uh, element, another level, I would say, uh, is on the debt question, question of debt. That has been a bit more complicated because there seems to be a lack of coordination among various uh, powers uh, beyond the pledge to assist Africa with debt alleviation. Um, China agreed in principle to provide uh, uh, some assistance uh, to address for African governments to address their debt solvency issue. But given that China's debt is mostly composed of commercial loans, uh, the, let's say the, the official position now is to talk about debt restructuring via bilateral discussions, you know, on a case-by-case -case selection. So there seems also to be a U.S.-China tension on this issue because U.S. officials are considering that cancelling debt for African countries might benefit China as it creates you know, more space for them to contract additional debt uh, to, uh, at, uh, with China. And in Europe, Europe has also been providing uh, assistance to African government, uh, but differently. A reallocation of initial aid, you know, towards the health uh, sectors and critical sectors, also medical materials, but here again, less amplified via social media, less visible, um, less subject to an organized campaign uh, as, as China did. But where the EU countries have been much more collaborative you know, than the US or China is on the debt question. When you see uh, official statements by President Macron from France, uh, who publicly voiced the need to uh, provide assistance to African countries via debt cancellation. And so that is on the government to government level. Um, when you look at it uh, on the societal level, and Aziz mentioned that a bit already, it's a bit more complex because there have been, um, especially in the case of China, the, the tensions uh, after the racist treatment towards Africans uh, in Guangzhou has created a huge backlash among African public opinions. Um, and especially that because this is not uh, the first time that this happens, it's an episode out of many. Uh, it shows also that how China-Africa relations have been much more government to government level uh, focused and you know less on people to people relations. Um, so I, I think I'll, I will, uh, on this specific question now, I'll, and then we can elaborate it uh, further later. Great. Thank you very much. So, so uh, the question of debt is uh, a long-term, both an immediate and a long-term one, particularly given the commodities, uh, the fallen commodity prices and the ability of African economies and governments to, to respond to that. And it's interesting to see how it comes into play between the, the, the geopolitical actors. And you've also uh, corrected perhaps my provocative comment about where's Europe by saying Europe is there, <laughs> but just not, not so visible, at least in the public domain. Um, uh, Elizabeth Sideropoulos, if I could ask you to comment. Right, yes. 
Well, thanks to both uh, Aziz and Falashada for setting, uh, for setting the context uh, and then also speaking specifically about some of the developments in, in, uh, around the uh, uh, COVID uh, diplomacy uh, of the last uh, uh, couple of months. Uh, perhaps um, let, me, let me take this to, um, uh, to a, a slightly different uh, um, uh, level and, and make some general remarks and then some specific areas where um, I think different actors, US, EU, uh, uh, China uh, may be playing. I, I think the first point to make is that the, um, uh, the pandemic has simply accentuated already existing trends, uh, both more broadly in terms of global politics, but also in the inherent tensions that we have seen uh, over a number of years, uh, certainly between uh, uh, the US and China, but also that sort of triangular, uh, some, sometimes rivalry um, uh, with, uh, with the European Union in terms of uh, who's winning the hearts and the minds of, uh, of, of African governments, but also um, a civil society, <clears throat> African, African societies more generally. Um, I think it is absolutely true to say that um, China has uh, been probably extremely high profile uh, in the way in which it has uh, engaged in its post-first phase anyway, uh, a COVID uh, pandemic uh, with the continent and indeed with other parts of, of, of the world as well. Um, uh, the U.S. has provided, as as Falashada said, some uh, some support, uh, but I think it gets lost in the very very uh, uh, strong rhetoric uh, that comes out of uh, of Washington D.C. Uh, and so it's almost as if uh, whatever they have, uh, whatever support has been provided, and I think it, it's not insubstantial, kind of gets lost in that noise. Um, Europe, of course, has been, as with the, uh, with the U.S., been battling simultaneously with uh, the pandemic and, and where the numbers of, uh, of infected people and deaths have been phenomenal, uh, you know, phenomenally high. And so the bandwidth has also been different. China is way ahead of the curve in terms of uh, where, where its pandemic is, has evolved. Uh, Europe... Uh, to some extent, Africa, although I think that's a little still behind Europe and the U.S. are still in the, in the throes of, of going through some of the worst, um, uh, worst effects on it. And certainly that has had uh, some impact on, uh, on the way in which they've engaged. But absolutely, I think uh, Europe, although it took some time for Europe to get its act together, both internally, and here I'm talking about the EU, but also Europe more broadly, um, it, uh, um, I think it's, it's uh, the initiatives in the last couple of weeks as well as around raising money for vaccines and research and so on, I think have all been very positive. But let me make then a couple of observations uh, in terms of what the longer term ramifications uh, uh, might be in, in, in sort of Africa being sort of caught in the middle of, of, of many of these, of these tensions between uh, certainly the US and China and then to some, to some extent um, uh, the UN, uh, the, the EU. Um, I, think, I think firstly, uh, uh, we as Africans need to be asking uh, very uh, hard questions about where we're going, where multilateralism is going, where the new order or the global order is going and what that means for us and we, what we want out of it. 
Um, um, clearly, we have for many years been talking about the importance of systemic change, uh, uh, of uh, certainly significant problems with 70-year-old uh, architecture, uh, which has uh, uh, reformed over time, but not sufficiently. Uh, but this is now coming to a stage where the original underwriter of the system has said, I've had enough of this, ciao. Um, and so, you know, some of the these rivalries and tensions play themselves very, very out, very, very clearly in, in the World Health Organization. Uh, uh, we see them at the UN, we see them at the IMF and, and, and World Bank and, and, and so on. For, for African countries, uh, this, this rivalry between and this tension, this polarization between uh, China and the U.S. Um, uh, carries the danger of eroding the rules in the absence of something new to take their place. And for, uh, for countries that are small, fairly marginal in the global economy and so on, this is, this is, a, this is a problem. And so it's not in our interest. And so the questions we must be asking is, where do we position ourselves uh, in this broader discussion around multilateralism? Um, the, second, uh, the second point relates to, uh, uh, to sort of global trade and related regionalism and probably related to the uh, growing protection and nationalism and populism, populism that we see around the world, uh, not, not, not least in, 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 in the countries, um, uh, in, the, in the two great powers. Um, and, and what that means then uh, for, uh, for our initiatives. Um, clearly, trade uh, uh, has taken a, a bit of a dive uh, coming out of uh, or in the middle of COVID-19. And this is apart from, uh, from the impact of oil and uh, uh, that has had on, on, oil, uh, on oil economies. Uh, there has been the, the, the rhetoric and the talk about reshoring many manufacturing enterprises and so on linked to pharmaceuticals. Uh, Africa, again, is in the midst of a, uh, is, is, is a taker of these. We don't, we don't produce uh, pharmaceuticals. Uh, we don't have much of a manufacturing uh, base. Um, we are reliant very much on, on global value chains, but uh, uh, sort of on the receiving, uh, receiving end. And I think a world that then moves, uh, particularly one that where the trade wars between the US and China and the technology wars uh, tend to drive everybody into their own corner, is a world where we have to really double up our efforts around regionalism and initiatives that we've undertaken around uh, the con African continental free trade area and building of regional uh, value chains. It raises the question about where investment is going to come from in the future, um, uh, given that there is, that, the, and certainly over the next couple of years, there will be a, a related slump um, in, in foreign direct investment. And then what role and how do we engage then more effectively with de development finance institutions in that regard. Um, the third point is, is, is really about where both China and the US and the EU uh, will be playing in the area of, of energy and renewable energy in particular. I've mentioned the slump in, in oil prices and how that has affected uh, a number of African countries, but it also create, creates then an opportunity, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste, creates an opportunity really for us to, uh, to really take the bull by the horns uh, and really make some, um, uh, uh, make, take some very difficult structural transformation decisions economically 
uh, around uh, issues of climate change and and uh, and, and sectors that are um, uh, that are more sustainable uh, rather than uh, fossil fuel um, um, intensive. We know where the U.S. is sitting on that. Uh, um, we know that the EU has had a very strong uh, engagement on that, and I suspect that over the next few months, as the EU prepares for an EU Africa summit, that that might be uh, uh, something on the on the on the agenda. Almost as a, uh, a COVID has helped to facilitate some of that. The other uh, uh, the other downside might be that countries say, "Well, you know, this is too much trouble to embark on such structural transformation. Let's forget about those." Chinese are willing to to help uh, fund some of these things. The U.S. couldn't care. Uh, let's just uh, business as usual. And the last point I just want to to raise uh, is really about technology, and the fact that COVID nineteen has highlighted how important technology is, uh, uh, and being able to uh, to have a digital economy. Uh, many African countries obviously um, are, are behind in that, but we also are in a position where uh, we uh, are. It's it's one. It's part of our objectives to roll out uh, um, ICT and to become more connected. And we have also sort of developed uh, very strong uh, uh, engagements with China around 5G uh, um, technology. And I think that is probably going to be one of those uh, uh, issues that that bubbles and and uh, has an impact on the way in which uh, the U.S.-China relationship impacts on on Africa in terms of the technology wars that are already uh, happening and, and taking place. Let me leave it there for the time being. Great. <clears throat> Thanks very much. I mean, I, I, what I hear pulling all the threads together through this is public diplomacy is absolutely central to the story of, of geopolitics now and that digital forms of it are, are becoming, the, 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 if you like, the battleground or at least the, the area of contestation to uh, if, if the United States, for instance, is not well represented uh, uh, across the continent. It's less about what it's doing, but it hasn't told its story or Europe or, or if China's represented in certain ways, it's because the story's being told in certain ways. So the centrality of, of digital diplomacy and, and who tells the story and how it's received are, are crucial or increasingly crucial. And that's part of that geopolitics, that centering of it. I wanted to pick up on a th some of these threads and, and, and come back to, to um, uh, Aziz and ask, ask you about um, multilateralism, actually, which was something Elizabeth just mentioned. And I'm wondering if, if uh, multilateralism then is an, a, a zone of contestation uh, for geopolitics and for Africa, given that Africa puts so much uh, uh, um, effort and aligning of policies and, and uh, is well represented in multilateral groups, you know, the, how, how this contestation or competitive conduct affects Africa? Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a very good question. Um, multilateralism works well when it's in the interest of the great powers. Uh, when it's not in the interest of uh, great powers, it doesn't work very well uh, because, of course, they control uh, the agenda. Oh, they control the agendas, uh, I should say. Uh, so, uh, for, and, and this, of course, poses all sorts of different dilemmas uh, for Africa. 
supporting multilateralism uh, when uh, the great powers want it to work. Uh, but what about when Africa wants it to work? Or what about when Africa needs it uh, to work? And usually that happens when uh, the great powers are more preoccupied as now with internal, not external, uh, survivals. Uh, the United States currently uh, basically doesn't really care much about multilateralism. Uh, China is filling a bit of that void, is filling a bit of, uh, of that gap. Uh, and that poses uh, massive challenges for Africa, how to position itself uh, uh, better uh, on the international stage uh, to benefit from uh, multilateralism. Very, very, very uh, complex. Uh, African countries uh, over the decades have not been particularly uh, successful in doing that. Uh, if, we, if we are honest, uh, we're going to, uh, to admit that. Uh, perhaps uh, post-COVID-19 uh, with new uh, formulations of multilateralism, uh, maybe uh, Africa can benefit uh, a bit more. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, uh, Folishada, I wanted to, to, to follow up on that with uh, comments on multilateralism and, and perhaps on the WHO uh, itself. We have an African leading the WHO. Does, how was uh, geopolitics read uh, or this competitive conduct being read uh, uh, by Africa, particularly with this, uh, what had been a celebrated appointment of an African mm. to a senior post in an agency? Yes, well, um, Dr. Tedros' uh, appointment was uh, really, I would say, celebrated, you know, first across uh, the continent and as being, you know, a, a milestone for African representation at the top levels of multilateral institutions because um, Africa is represented in, in, in all these various um, arenas, but, you know, there, has, there was this debate for already for several years on how to push for African leaders to be you know, at, at top positions. Um, so at the WHO, uh, you're right, so there's this, there's this tension now, and I think Aziz mentioned it uh, already, uh, on how the U.S. has you know, disengaged from uh, these uh, various institutions. The U.S. Uh, left, uh, suspended first its, its financial contribution, and now left the, the WHO. Um, well, I think it... It depends on, I think it might be um, an issue at, at several levels. First, um, these institutions are um, very crucial you know, for um, Africa's development. You know, there are so many several projects that have uh, that are carried out there and the lack of funding. We all know that the U.S. represents quite a, a very important uh, percentage uh, in terms of financial contributions to these institutions. So that that will definitely be an impact on the uh, on the continent. Um, however, what uh, we've seen so far, especially during this pandemic, is sort of quite a common support, I would say a collective, sorry, a collective support from several, um, from many African presidents, you know, towards, uh, towards the, the lead, uh, well, towards Dr. Tedros at the WHO, but also if we go down a bit, you know, on, on regional uh, multilateral institutions, you know, thinking about the African Development Bank, for instance, and its um, chief uh, executive that is also facing 
uh, you know, um, an internal crisis with the U.S. demanding for uh, in, an independent internal investigation. Um, here again, you know, there's some collective support from African governments uh, and from African leaders who voice it clearly on social media, you know, to, to, to keep these, uh, these leaders in place. So those are the tendencies uh, that I'm observing. Thank you, thank you. Um, I, I just to tell there, there are quite a number of uh, questions coming in. I'm, I've got a few questions I want to continue to put to the panel, but I'll certainly uh, be turning it over and reading your questions, uh, um, audience, uh, as uh, shortly. Um, if I could ask uh, Elizabeth uh, to speak to the question of particular sectors, do you see um, the kind of competitive? Uh, geopolitics. We've talked about it in a multilateral sector and, and uh, uh, in its impact there. Does it have any meaning in areas such as development and security? Does this, do we find uh, competition um, impinging on the actual delivery of these very important public uh, goods to African governments and, and uh, uh, societies? I mean, that's, that's a good question, and I think it's important to, to differentiate sometimes, although not always, from the sort of high rhetoric uh, um, that particularly comes out of, or the social media rhetoric that, that comes out of, uh, uh, out of Washington, um, and then what is actually happening on, on the ground. I think that's important to make that point, certainly in the area of of, of development and development cooperation. Um, I think in other areas, of course, it's, it's, it, it, it reflects, um, uh, reflects reality. I think if we were just to touch on, on say, development and development cooperation uh, more specifically, clearly um, uh, both the US and, and the EU and, uh, and the 27 uh, uh, member states uh, are, are important aid uh, providers to uh, to the continent. Certainly, the, the European Union is, is is the largest aid provider to the continent. And a lot of that, if we're coming back to the point about about debt, a lot of those are actual grants, and that's a little different then from the way in which uh, uh, China has engaged, where there's also a significant amount that is that is that is loans. Um, why 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 do I say that? I think. And at the same time, while both the EU and the US, you know, provide significant support uh, aid to uh, to the continent, and certainly uh, when we talk about the HIV/AIDS uh, crisis, the the US's PEPFAR program has been one of the most significant uh, uh, in, in in helping countries uh, combat um, combat the HIV/AIDS uh, uh, virus. Um, these amounts are still very small if you're just looking about on the impact at the impact of COVID-19 on African economies, African socioeconomic indicators. Um, anyway, they, they were going. They are small anyway. Uh, given the uh, particular domestic uh, challenges that both Europe and the US are facing now in dealing with the uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, and them mobilising trillions. Of dollars in, in in that regard, there is also bound to be some uh, serious uh, discussion about whether aid money, even though that's very small, you're talking about sort of 150 billion, um, even even though you're talking about such small amounts, there is likely to be a redirection. Um, uh, 
uh, or a reduction. Uh, doesn't really um, affect the relationship between the US and China too much uh, in terms of how it plays out in Africa, but it certainly has an impact on the way in which Africans uh, uh, might view the US. The USAID budget has been under political uh, strain for some, uh, for some time, and that certainly is one of those soft tools which I think uh, the US has generally acknowledged as an important uh, aspect of its diplomacy but which under this administration certainly has declined. It is something that the Chinese really regard as, 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 as very important. Um, uh, and so they continue to use that as an effective uh, a soft power tool. Um, the, if, if you were to move to the, uh, to the area of, uh, of, of, of conflict or, or peace and security uh, more specifically, clearly, both, part, uh, both, uh, both countries uh, have a particular interest in different parts of the continent. Both have an interest in stability. Uh, they have both been involved either multilaterally or bilaterally. Uh, the U.S. more often bilaterally, uh, but, the, but the Chinese really supporting uh, efforts at stability uh, via the African uh, Union. Um, they, their interests obviously don't coalesce, um, but they're probably not uh, um, on, on specific conflicts, not necessarily on, other, on, on either side of, of, of the equation in the way, say, that the U.S. might be with Russia in, in certain conflicts on, on the continent. Having said that, I think the, the U.S. is very uh, acutely aware of the fact that this is also one of the attempts by uh, by China to make uh, inroads into into the hearts and minds of both AU continental institutions as well as particular elites and and and, and particular societies, um, and um, uh, and 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 so their continued presence, particularly in the Sahel, um, uh, plays out on two levels. Obviously, the concerns around uh, around terrorism and uh, extremism, but also the importance of retaining. Um, uh, a hold on, on uh, and a presence in the continent. Of course, AFRICOM uh, uh, is still a, an important uh, tool that uh, that uh, that the Americans use in, in 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 that regard. So these are potential areas where, um, uh, even though they may not come into into uh, into direct uh, conflict, uh, these are areas which, depending on how each side uh, engages with the Africans, can help to increase. Uh, the, uh, um, uh, the its profile in a positive way uh, uh, or, or, or decrease it. I think having said that, and this is my last point, I think there is also the potential, ironically, for some cooperation, trilateral cooperation between Africans, Americans, and Chinese in areas such as health, uh, where you're talking about engagement, not necessarily at a governmental level, but certainly um, uh, NGOs and other actors that can come together. And that has happened in the past. In fact, the, the CDC, the African CDC, is, is, is an element of that cooperation in, in, in West Africa around Ebola um, uh, is another. And, and so that, so I think we should see it as a, as a multi-level uh, uh, engagement where there can be heightened uh, uh, rivalry, but at the same time also very functional cooperation on the ground. And in that sense, it differs from uh, uh, we, we're from the Cold War era, 
uh, where really there was an absence of cooperation almost across the board in all sectors. Whereas we see, you know, we can see competition in some venues at some moments uh, in this setting, and we see uh, you know, distinctive forms of cooperation playing out as well. So that's, you know, it is, it's, it's, it should be recognized. I would also say that what, what I hear from, from, from all of you is the idea that African agency uh, has an opening here, that there are opportunities for African states in competitive environments to uh, play, uh, to, to at least play off or at least uh, improve their position, their bargaining power vis-a-vis -vis the great powers. I'm wondering, uh, Aziz, if, if you have any thoughts on, on that. Uh, on, on, but before, before touching on, on Africa uh, agency, uh, Chris, if I may, uh, I want to go back to a point you just made. You mentioned uh, the Cold War. Uh, and in my sense, actually, when, when you said that, I thought you were talking about the new Cold War or the second Cold War uh, between uh, the United States uh, and China. That, In my view, it's uh, basically upon us. Uh, and this uh, will, will impact a lot of thinking about development uh, and about security, both in China, in the United States, uh, and uh, in Africa. So uh, I think that we need to uh, we need to pay attention to how uh, this new Cold War will affect uh, both uh, security and development. Uh, to your question about uh, about agency, uh, African agency. Uh, in my view, uh, agency hinges on influence. Uh, in fact, when, when we define uh, agency, I think the key word is influence, the degree to which, in this particular case, uh, African political leaders, African states, African actors generally uh, can uh, carve room within the international uh, system uh, room to maneuver, room to influence, room to uh, help determine agendas, uh, and so on and so forth. My sense, though, is that uh, most African countries are a bit, um, uh, their ability to exert influence internationally is still limited. It's still limited. Uh, it's still limited because they do not necessarily have uh, the great currency uh, of international relations power uh, in sufficient supplies, in sufficient, uh, their stock of power is not sufficient uh, to influence um, international relations today. You know, just uh, to, if we can talk about, for example, debt, as we've been talking about, uh, many African countries spend more of their resources servicing external debt than on healthcare. Uh, this is this is extraordinary. You know, it's very difficult uh, for a country or for a group of countries uh, to exert influence internationally to have agency if they have to choose between either you pay your foreign creditors, or you allow your citizens to die. It's very difficult 
for countries like the United States, like China, like the European uh, states, uh, to look upon African countries with a tremendous amount of agency. Uh, so I believe that uh, for African countries to really have um, agency uh, internationally, uh, they will have to take care of the internal issues first. They have to uh, ensure that uh, their economies are developing uh, to a level where uh, dependency is no longer uh, the reality. Uh, their, their societies are strong. Uh, their societies are, are vibrant, their societies are resilient. Once those internal dynamics are better taken care of, then uh, the issue of African agency internationally automatically follows. The reverse, I don't think, uh, will be the case. And, and it's interesting that... Um, the, the period that we associate with uh, the rise of Africa, which is an economic rise, and with that a sort of uh, coherent position on the international stage that emerged in, in the 2000s, or uh, the first decade and, and uh, uh, a bit into the second decade of the 2000s, started with um, the HIPAA initiative, the heavily indebted poor countries, the, de the decision to, uh, to, to forgive uh, debt, across African economies the, or those most affected. And, uh, and it enabled these economies to begin to, to, to jumpstart. And that also, again, gave that, that space for, great, for greater development and greater growth and agency in that. Um, what worries me about the pandemic is that we have, and, it's, and uh, Folishada had uh, mentioned this, is that we're actually on, on another debt cliff with the continent and that uh, how external powers respond to this. Um, and I would like to think if that, that there's a coordinated and constructive response, but I'm not sure that that's in the making as yet. So perhaps you can uh, give us a, a bit more on that point, Folishanda. Um Well, on the debt question, I think what um, first on the specific debt question in relations to the pandemic um, uh, that is currently taking place, it's, uh, let's say it's an evolving matter. Um, there doesn't seem to be a consensus uh, on both sides, actually. There is no consensus on the African side and there's no consensus on the creditors side. So if we look um, at the, on the African, the African government side first. So first of all, there are different um, requests. Some are asking for debt cancellation. Others are asking for um, debt moratorium. And you have a small category of countries like, you know, my own, uh, where I'm from, Benin, who um, just doesn't want anything. They, so their stance is, well, uh, we want to pay everything back uh, because um, if we go into such a program, it will affect our sovereign rate, right? Um, but what this reflects is also the various uh, or the different levels of indebtment by African countries. Their GDP, uh, the debt to uh, GDP ratio is very different. Um, so uh, the, here we start, here we already have, um, let's say, a lack of, of consensus. Um, on the other side, on the creditor side, 
Africa's um, debt or Africa's contracted debt to with so many different uh, contractors. So we have private ones, um, public ones, the development banks, and so there's no, uh, there's not necessarily a coordination there. There, well, we can take some examples. You know, there has been a general pledge by the G20. I mentioned earlier that Europe seems to be more uh, engaging into, um, you know, debt cancellation or debt moratorium for those who are requesting it. Um, the participants in uh, in the in, an Afri in the Africa Private Club, uh, you know, have um, already established also a number of core principles of engagement. And uh, there's also uh, here China also plays a very important factor because many of these countries are um, heavily indebted towards China. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about you know, Zambia, uh, Angola, to some extent also South Africa. Um, and most of these loans are commercial loans. And historically, uh, China doesn't cancel Histor uh, con concessional loans. So uh, they tend to you know, restructure the debt. And also, uh, China is playing on both sides. They pledge, you know, for the need for assistance uh, for for Africa to be assisted on this on this uh, specific topic. But at the same time, they um, also prefer to go the bilateral way by discussing all of these cases, you know, on a case by case basis, uh, but bilaterally. Um, so I think there it's still, let's say. Um, it's very complex you know, at this stage. Um, and I think it's also an evolving matter uh, at the same time. Thank you. Um, I have such, we have a huge number of questions here. So people have been very patient uh, uh, and I hope uh, um, have, have uh, learned and, and uh, a lot of, from what we've been talking about. So let me bring in some of the questions. Uh, let me start with one from, from a, um, a UK uh, law enforcement officer. He asked the question uh, on the security side of things, how do African countries feel the EU and its member states are reacting to the Chinese presence in 5G and, and the purchase of key strategic metals, for instance, for electric vehicles. So quite a specific security question, security, but commercial security question. Um, I wonder if any of the panelists, uh, before I assign somebody, want to take that. Elizabeth, you look braced to take that question. <laughs> um, um, I'm not, uh, I think the question focused on how the EU sees the way in which Africa uh, African countries are engaging with China on 5G and... Yeah, correct. Yes, I, I, I worded it probably. Um, um, okay, so I'm going to... I'm not sure... I don't, I don't know if I will be able to answer it directly, but clearly to make, uh, to make the point uh, and to reflect on the uh, EU's own internal discussions around... Uh, uh, a 5G and, 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 and China's engagement in, in, in the EU, uh, EU and the purchasing of, and also I think added to that, uh, the purchasing of uh, potentially uh, strategic uh, companies. And I know there's been a big debate within the European Union about, uh, about the extent to which certain 
industry should perhaps be protected uh, from takeover, particularly now uh, uh, during uh, during this recession, uh, so to be protected uh, from uh, from China, uh, from Chinese uh, uh, purchases. But I, my understanding is also that even in, in, in Europe, broadly defined, uh, not just the European Union, the issue of, uh, of, of 5G in China is, is also a matter that, is, uh, uh, that has been much debated, but that that hasn't necessarily been decided one way, one way or another. Having said that, I, I, I imagine that um, Europe, and I, I can't speak, uh, speak for them, but, but uh, my perception is that there is probably some concern, um, uh, bearing in mind how Europe has seen uh, China as both a, a competitor and uh, and a partner with which they can, they try to cooperate from time to time on the continent. And I think there is some concern about uh, growing, uh, potentially growing monopolization, both of technology um, as well as as of of strategic minerals that are key for. Uh, key inputs for uh, for technology. I think that that is seen also in the in the paper that was re re released by the European uh, Commission uh, a little while ago on on the relationship with China uh, and the broader internal debates that they have vis-a-vis uh, uh, -vis, uh, Chinese industry technology and so on. Um, I think that uh, uh, there, there's more to say on that particular topic. Um, but um, do, do either of you, uh, do, do either Fulishad or Aziz want to say anything further or shall we park it f and, and move on to another question? Okay. Um, what what uh, a number of people have, have asked is uh, where's where are the other powers? We're speaking as if the great power discussion is a, uh, or external power discussion is one that's rooted in, in two players with the, the European Union in a, as a, a kind of collective actor that uh, defined as EU or, or as Europe uh, in various ways. What about countries like India? Where's Brazil? Uh, there, there are so-called uh, middle-range powers, uh, South Korea and the like. All of them are players in this environment, and all of them exercise or seek to exercise some kind of influences. And I wonder if... if uh, uh, my colleagues have, have uh, comments on that. Let me start with uh, Aziz. The, the other countries are there. Uh, you know, you look at uh, India, uh, even Iran. You know, the, the, these countries are there and they, they are, they are, they're playing. They're playing important roles. Uh, Turkey, um, you know, uh, they, they have, uh, uh, in a way, rediscovered Africa. Uh, they they understand uh, that Africa will have a very very important impact into the future. No, uh, if you look if you look around the world, uh, most young people you know the majority of young people are in fact in Africa, uh, and they're growing. So a lot of other countries, uh, Brazil has very long uh, uh, historical ties with Africa. These countries are there. These countries are there, but is the ability of countries like China uh, to really impact development, uh, to impact security, to impact society in fundamental ways? There, it's almost like there is in there are two different categories, two different categories. 
country. And China is quickly uh, becoming uh, a league of its own because when China comes to the table, uh, China comes with massive quantities of whatever it is uh, that the Africans uh, need or want. Sometimes they don't need or they don't want. Africa, uh, China brings it uh, anyway. There's really no other country right now uh, except the United States in the area of security. That's a massive exception. Except the United States in the area of security, there are very few other countries that can bring to Africa what, uh, what the United States and China uh, can. Now, Brazil, for example. Uh, Brazil uh, has, for the last maybe three decades, four decades or so, been a- attempting to play a-, a role in Africa. But he is not. He is not. Uh, the-, the promise of Brazilian-African cooperation in a number of fields has not, has not materialized. You know, uh, Brazil comes in and builds a dam, takes them decades to, to complete that project. China comes in in a matter of months, done. Uh, so Africans see that. And that's one of the reasons why Africans are, in a way, uh, positioning themselves better with China because Africans are pragmatic. Uh, China is bringing very tangible, very, very tangible returns on that relationship uh, with, uh, with Africa. And I think that's the, reason, that's the reason why you see China, not so much the other BRICS, uh, China, not so much the other countries that would like to have uh, a relationship, a deeper relationship with Africa. China is succeeding because of just the, the, the magnitude uh, of uh, the resources uh, that they bring to the table. Go ahead, go ahead, Elizabeth, go ahead. Well, okay, I see I've been unmuted. So um, um, I want to pick up on, on what I see said now and, and related to the previous remark he made about the Cold War. A, a second uh, Cold War, and I think that's that's an important observation. Although I hope we're not at the threshold of a of a new Cold War, um, um, but I think we need to. Uh, uh, African countries need to be very acutely aware of 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 where the trends are in 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 that sense, because what you don't want is uh, uh, the repetition of the previous Cold War in terms of, of, uh, of uh, conflict becoming proxies between one and another side. And if the, the competition um, uh, is exacerbated uh, between uh, China and, and the U.S. through a security prism, I think that is, that is a concern going forward. I, don't, I mean, it's not necessarily one that is happening now, but I think it, 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 it is a concern. I think the one, uh, uh, the, the one point I want to uh, to make around um, around other powers is that absolutely they don't have the capacity, they don't have the um, uh, the various uh, and substantive instruments that say a China or, or a US has. But in the absence in in this current interim period, let's say um, uh, where uh, you know the US is retreating, I think it's still by far the most 
relatively speaking, the most powerful global actor. Uh, China is rising, but it's it's still not the uh, uh, the global hegemon, and I, I think still has uh, sort of capacity constraints um, around that. This this particular period creates the uh, environment for other powers to actually uh, uh, look to advance their interests. And sometimes they can advance their interests without too much uh, wherewithal. Um, and, and one good example is the way in which Russia, ha- uh, Russia is engaging, particularly in the, in the, in the, security, um, in the security domain. Another one, of course, is to look at Turkey, particularly in Libya particularly in Libya, where it's actually given the Russians a run for their money. Um, But it's also made significant uh, advances as a regional power in a much broader, you know, region, sort of the eastern and central Mediterranean, as well as as the Middle East uh, and the Gulf also, um, the Gulf states also looking to, uh, to parts of the continent where they have seen some vacuum, power vacuum emerging, to actually be able to uh, to become much more involved, uh, and in fact to bring some of the Gulf politics into into North Africa, and so this this current period is actually quite dangerous because um, you know how do you deal with the conflict in Libya? Well, it's not just an AU issue, or it's just not a North Africa issue. There are so many other external actors that are in the in the mix now that it becomes really really difficult uh, to try to not. Um, uh, uh, to try to to mediate and to and to negotiate some sort of uh, settlement. There's so many uh, different um, uh, agendas. Yeah, Felicia, please. Yes, I, I would just like to um, to add something to what uh, Elizabeth and Aziz already said. It, it would be interesting to see how this uh, emerging powers competition will play out. Um, in, during this crisis, but also, you know, in a post-COVID-19 era, it's very likely that um, global health diplomacy will be, you know, at the center now. It, it will gain much more in priority. Um, and given that health diplomacy occupies, you know, the interface between international health assistance and also international political relations, um, it, it it would be interesting to to see how emerging powers will carry out this diplomacy in Africa. And so, yes, there's been a lot of talk on China, but um, one should also remember that since 2009, India, you know, has been very active in um, committing, you know, finance, at least $100 million uh, to bilateral health projects, but also has been very active in, especially in West Africa, you know, in carrying out the e-health diplomacy. Um, there's this uh, initiative called the Pan-Africa Telemedicine, you know, and Teleeducation Network, where hospitals, universities throughout West Africa are connected uh, with their counterparts in India to facilitate um, health um, and best uh, practices, you know, in medicine. So um, it, it would be interesting to see with this global pandemic uh, how countries like India, but also China, who will uh, very likely, you know, uh, redirect some of its projects in, you know, maybe constructing more hospitals and, you know, more uh, health-related infrastructure. Uh, It will be interesting to see how it carries out. But most importantly, I think it is 
how do African leaders take advantage of this uh, of these multiple offers, you know, and there is where the question of agency becomes uh, uh, is, I would say, central. You know, when you compare how African governments engage with these various um, actors, it is also a, a huge variety. You know, some like Ethiopia or Rwanda have specific dedicated desks, you know, like China, a China desk where um, diplomats or, you know, other officials speak Mandarin. They have a good knowledge of the Chinese culture. They are um, of the Indian culture and so on. So they are, uh, the way bureaucracies are structured will also determine how African governments take uh, the most advantage of uh, well, this rising interest uh, on Africa. And, and do you think that uh, some African governments are better poised and positioned to take advantage of it? And, and I'm thinking perhaps in, on the health side, that, that since that's the, the starting point for our discussion, is, is it um, our, you know, we're, un, we're presenting an Africa that's un, essentially undifferentiated, but of course, the great diversity, institutional depth, mode of governance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, does, what, what, what do you think, Fulashada, others on the panel think? Of, um, well, um, let's say, I think it, it, I said it a bit um, uh, in, in my previous remark. I think it really depends on uh, whether or not these governments have, uh, let's say a China strategy or an India strategy or not. Uh, no, I, I'm specialized on you know, Francophone West African countries. And I, when I compare them, um, I, I can see that sometimes China or dealing with China, relations with China or with India um, haven't, um, haven't created like a reorganization of these bureaucracies meaning that the Asia department uh, deals with India matters and China matters, but there's no dedicated team. Uh, and so this hasn't changed uh, overall. But there are some exceptions, you know, and you take a country like Cote d'Ivoire, they have a dedicated um, China uh, desk as well, just like Ethiopia does, mm -hmm. because the, the rising number of infrastructure projects and uh, also the debt and loan contraction um, towards China has created the need to coordinate um, and elaborate a specific strategy. And this is uh, more the case, I, I think also a bit with Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, but less the case with other small countries. If you take a country like uh, Benin, for instance, one of the struggles they have had is because they haven't been able to uh, negotiate very um, effectively, you know, uh, on a coordinated basis. And so that creates lots of issues where you have some, you, agency is still there, you know, but it's very um, sporadic, you know, it's individual, it's, um, it depends on one, uh, there's one department that exercises, you know, more agency in terms of signing better deals, uh, providing, you know, more um, labor contracts, uh, you know, just reviewing whether, environment and construction norms are enforced. So um, there's, there's really an important variation there. And I think one thing that is uh, really a priority is the need to come up with a very coherent strategy towards 
China or even the others but with these countries that are now their first trade partners. Great. And, and I see I have some other questions here. This one that came through for Elizabeth in particular, um, which is the import, about the importance of technology. Um, but uh, uh, you flagged that in your opening statement. But how is it that, uh, and this is a, from Colombia, I should say, um, how is it that um, Internet, how is this supposed to happen with so many communities that don't have access to, to the Internet? Uh, you know, we, why even talk about 5G when, when people, you know, don't ha have no G, as it were? Uh, uh, so in... in uh, is there an opportunity here to expand that? Does this provide the uh, access points to, to expanding that? What do you think? Yeah, no, abs absolutely. Um, and, uh, and as a whole, I think uh, there are, across the continent, there are pockets of technological innovation anyway. Uh, that have uh, that have been rolled out and have actually been taken outside of the continent, but absolutely uh, large parts. And I don't have the f the figures to to hand uh, immediately in terms of connectivity and 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 so on. But the fact of the matter is that uh, smartphones, uh, are, you know, do not have a hundred percent coverage in terms of the population, but are certainly. Uh, 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 growing in in in, in reach, um, there is a possibility, and this has been something that has also been recognised continentally. There is a possibility uh, to, uh, and indeed an imperative uh, that that COVID has has brought to the fore even more strongly. There is an imperative to actually roll out uh, infrastructure, ICT infrastructure even to the most uh, remote areas. We have already heard the stories of, of farmers in rural parts of East Africa or Southern Africa sort of getting, you know, getting prices of products uh, 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 or um, uh, where they might sell their, uh, their, their produce on their phones and so on. And so these are opportunities that are critical if we are to increase at least our economic agency and reduce our dependency. I think COVID has brought that home more forcefully. The question is whether after COVID and whether that is over the next year or two years or whatever it, it, it might take to, to get over it, uh, we are still going to be uh, focused on, uh, on the lessons that we are learning now about what we need to do in terms of our development. If we don't do that, and this is the big challenge around development, if we don't do this, uh, we stand to lose a lot of the developmental gains that we um, uh, we on the continent made over the last uh, last two decades. That's the biggest uh, that's the biggest uh, threat. And I think technology not only creates opportunities, uh, uh, but also um, but is also an essential means of doing work in the 21st century. And we can leapfrog. We, you know, it doesn't have to come through us. We can. Uh, it doesn't have to be developed by us. Uh, technology has shown that uh, even if you're uh, sort of late, you come into the game very late, you can certainly, you, you can miss out, you can skip out all the earlier steps uh, and make some progress. Clearly, there are going to be hubs. There are some countries that will be better able uh, to engage with it than others. Um, and some of them, you know, are notable. But, you know, you can think of the Kenyas, you can think of the South Africans, hopefully, if we uh, if we do something with our spectrum or Rwandas um, uh, and so on. But this is absolutely um, on the agenda, certainly in the agenda in discussions with, with China. 
Uh, the, my president, the South African president, has been on record about saying that, you know, we stand with China on, on its 5G technology when there was the, uh, when I think President Trump had, had made some, some statements in, in, in that regard. So these are conversations that uh, African leaders are, uh, uh, are having and believe are, are critical. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's possible and it's essential. Oh, great. Thank you. I think um, <clears throat> I, I wanted to bring in a few other questions here because they're really flying in fast and furious. So I'm trying to sort through as they pop up. One of them was on South-South cooperation by, by a um, colleague out of Southeast Asia, Lupfei uh, Siddiqui, um, and whether this enhances the opportunities um, uh, for Africa, for Africa, as a, as a, in, in terms of South-South cooperation, or problem solving, looking east or looking south, maybe is a better way to put it, uh, because of the relative strengths and success of some of the countries of uh, the, the, new, uh, the newly emerging or developing countries, and what they can, what the, the lessons that can be learned and transmitted. Does this offer up new opportunities and new thinking? In African, amongst African policymakers, when they look to to Africa, maybe uh, Aziz, if you could uh, uh, speak to that. Sure, Chris. Uh, you know, South South cooperation um, has been has been there for for decades. Uh, go back to the Bandung Conference, uh, the Non-Aligned Movement, and you know, South South cooperation has been there. Uh, but as I said earlier, South-South cooperation has never risen to the level uh, that uh, Africans, for example, might expect in, in, a, in a whole area of, in a broad spectrum of, of areas, development, security, technology, and so on and so forth. Uh, because uh, the, the, uh, the developing countries, uh, you know, the fast developing countries are still developing. You know, they still have issues internally that they are trying to solve. You know, even China, even China, don't forget that China uh, is still trying to get rid of um, massive levels of poverty. Now, I think that they will be able to reach an important goal next year, 2021, of uh, getting rid of um, absolute poverty. Okay. It doesn't mean that they don't have poverty. They just got getting rid of absolute poverty. What that tells you is uh, that their resources, you know, whatever wealth they're creating internally, their top priority is still addressing internal concerns before they address African concerns. Same thing with India. Same thing with Pakistan. Same thing with Bangladesh. You could go on and on at South Korea. You could go on and on and on. These countries still, before they look at elsewhere, before they look at Africa, before they look at, uh, at the big south or the global south, uh, they still have their own internal problems. And only after they, in their calculations, resources are allocated to address internal uh, concerns, whatever is left over, then it goes, it goes elsewhere. Not the other way around. Not the other way around. Uh, so South-South cooperation is great in theory, uh, but we also need to understand that the realities of South-South cooperation uh, tend to lead 
countries uh, in the South uh, to address their own internal development, security, and other issues uh, before engaging with, with, their, with their partners uh, in, in the South. Well, Ishada, yeah. Uh, yes, well, if I put uh, the question in the context of the of the pandemic, um, I think South-South cooperation, um, meaning, you know, exchange of uh, idea, ideas, but also exchange of best practices could be very, um, well, it has already been taking place, but it could be even more, um, let's say, promoted in this context. Um, take the example of, uh, you know, the different types of lockdown measures that uh, various African countries have uh, implemented, some, you know, more or less uh, restrictions or not. Uh, many of these models were copied from the West. And so there have been voices saying, um, we don't have the same, um, we don't have the same, let's say, not only issues, but we don't have the same economic uh, capacity, you know, to implement such hard measures. And so taking examples from Vietnam, for instance, you know, who has been um, very quick to respond, you know, implemented uh, several measures, you know, you know diminished the number of, um, of infections, but also... Uh, let's say, cheaper ways of doing things, right? Um, information, the use of social media. Uh, I think what this has shown is that there's no one-size-fits-all uh, way of doing things. And South-South cooperation could be, you know, much more at the center point. And you now we are talking about South-South cooperation in terms of Africa, Asia, but also when you look at how some uh, West African countries have implemented their curfews, or there's been a lot of exchanges. You know, Senegal has been helping a lot in um, in in providing, uh, you know, examples or you know, exchanging how they've been able to um, to to well, you know, to manage the crisis so far. And I think that would be much more interesting for other African governments to um, study. No, then just taking uh, you know, examples from other countries with uh, which they don't share the same, you know, structural uh, and um, and economic um, economic uh, frameworks and and situations. Thank you. What What about an, another colleague from uh, or another uh, questioner from? Uh, London School, Imperial College, London School of Public Health has asked about corruption and whether the pandemic has had an impact on corruption, given its uh, debilitating effect more generally on, on governance in Africa and other countries, obviously, as well. Um, and will it, Im will, will it improve efforts to tackle cor corruption? I wonder if, Elizabeth, you could speak fairly quickly to that. Um, I will speak uh, with, with reference to, to the South African case. Of course, we've just come out of, uh, maybe we're still in it, uh, 10 years of, of state capture. Um, I think that was one of the concerns uh, in terms of the government's significant rollout uh, of, of support, both in terms of uh, food packages, um, 
particularly around those as well as procurement of, of, of equipment and, and so on. And I think what we've seen at some levels of government, not necessarily at national government, but uh, at, at provincial or specifically at, at, at local government, some cases where this has become apparent. Um, um, I, th I think there are investigations uh, happening in the case of, of food parcels to, to the poor. Uh, uh, what has come to, to the fore is that some of these have been used uh, to, uh, to give food to particular supporters of particular political parties and not others. So this is an issue. Uh, I think in the South African context, uh, uh, the national government is trying to, uh, to tackle it, but I'm, I'm sure there are probably examples in other parts of the continent too. Thanks very much. Um, do, uh, another question that's come through is, is uh, um, whether this will produce uh, additional, um, and there's China specific here, whether this will uh, uh, strengthen the dependency, and I guess it's a debt related question ultimately, uh, strengthen or in the dependency of African governments on one particular external power over another be it China or some of the European Union, whether that's, a, that that's the, the, the larger impact of this crisis and that uh, over the long term. Aziz, if you want to, to try that. Sure, sure. You know, um, dependency uh, has been a constant uh, in in Africa's um, external relations, uh, you know, it's, it's always been there. That's something that uh, Africans have never really been able to liberate themselves from. Uh, and I, I don't think that COVID-19 will change that equation. Uh, again, I think that many of these issues are internal. You know, we, we talk a little bit about uh, corruption, uh, Africa could liberate itself before to deal with corruption. No more dependence. You know, there's $150 billion per year that just vanished. This, uh, this, this is an AU study. $150 billion per year. Now imagine that. You know, calculate that. Times how long has Africa been independent? Okay times $150 billion, it's a lot of money. Uh, you could buy independence with that kind of money. Uh, but uh, at, uh, right now, the reality is that things by and large are still the same, uh, whether it's in South Africa or in Angola or elsewhere on the continent, let's not mention Nigeria, corruption is rampant. Uh, and you cannot gain independence with that level of corruption. Simple as that. Polishanda. <laughs> very briefly, um, very briefly on the question of, of, of corruption, I think that there's been a general call, you know, uh, during the debt uh, debates to make sure that debt cancellations and the funds that are made available by this um, are wisely redirected towards strategic investments in health and public health uh, infrastructure and capacity. And yes, uh, several uh, civil society actors have been, um, you know, 
winging the alarm on making sure that um, you know there's no um, elite capture of you know whether it's uh, the funds, but also uh, all of the materials that are provided. So many countries in in the Gambia, let's say many countries like the Gambia or Cameroon have already received several medical um, aid support and they have been, well, let's say civil society actors have voiced not only concerns, but also um, uh, denunciations of how these materials uh, are, you know, are taken away from their initial uh, purpose, meaning they, they, that's also a way of, of of you know doing uh, corruption uh, on the dependency question i think it's very important um we, we won't be able to do that here but it's very important to look at the different uh, economic resilience plans that uh, african governments are setting up so um and are implementing you know so this first there are uh, economic there are plans to, on how to um you know how to to let's say, diminish the effects of, you know, the the crisis, but also after how uh, on economic plans to, you know, um, relaunch the economy, to, to put it that way. And so I think there are several elements there where um, several measures, you know, like diversifying, diversifying the, uh, the economies, um, you know, uh, furthering regional integration and the AFCTA, the informal sector. Um, so I, I think it will all depend on African government's capacities because they, they must be at the center of this analysis, right? Or how, how they will be able to implement all these measures and to rethink uh, the development models. And you know, I think for many, COVID-19 is seen as um, a defining moment, you know, as a, a way to, well, now is the time to push, you know, even, um, even harder on uh, implementing everything that has been said, you know, before on how to, uh, on how African government should um, rethink their development models and, you know, implement economic transformation on the continent. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We have literally a few minutes here. I wonder if I could go around the group and just uh, some final statements and perhaps uh, uh, reflections on on what global trends uh, you might be seeing. Africa has often been seen as a, as a sort of at the forefront of transform or of visible transformation in the international system. For instance, China and other emerging powers became most uh, evident their their role. Uh, as as uh, glo aspirant global powers became most evident in Africa, so I wonder if there are other sorts of global trends or or trends of that kind that uh, we can see, and you would be willing to stick your necks out <laughs> to 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 identify. And perhaps I can work in um, uh, in the same order that we had gone before with Aziz first uh, for Lashada and then Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. uh, Chris, you know. <sighs> Well, first of all, you know, big picture, I don't think international relations really uh, changed much. Uh, the post-COVID-19 world will look very much uh, like the one we have today. Uh, but one of the things I see is uh, Africa emerging uh, as, as a new battleground. 
uh, I see this, um, especially uh, sitting here uh, in the United States. I see the Trump administration with its sights uh, on Africa as, a, uh, as an important front uh, in, in the fight against the coronavirus and against China. So uh, the United States basically wants to uh, reassert uh, leadership uh, on global health uh, issues. Uh, it wants to reassert leadership in other areas Uh, so uh, I see the administration uh, trying to signal to African countries uh, to, to look at the United States uh, instead uh, of China. Uh, yet at the same time, for reasons that we've already articulated, uh, China wants to keep African states uh, on its side. So I see a trend not necessarily going back to the old um, dynamics uh, of the classic Cold War between the United States and the USSR, uh, but I see Africa potentially getting caught again uh, between two great powers. Thank you. Folishada, in, in a few short words. Yes, well, um, geopolitically, uh, I think uh, besides China, it will be interesting to watch, you know, the repositioning of Russia, you know, and the geoeconomic and um, political alignment of some African countries like the Central African Republic, uh, uh, Guinea, uh, and Russia in, in Libya, as Elizabeth uh, told us earlier, um, how they are also financing civil, civil society actors that have you know, a very anti-Western stance. So Russia will be key in this, uh, in, in this geopolitical game. Um, I think economically, in terms of leapfrog, uh, we mentioned it a bit, but you know, there's an increased need to further digitalization. Uh, and so that will also be uh, very central now because it's an ongoing process but the pandemic has shown how for instance the education sector has been very impacted no computer equipment data for homeschooling are very expensive and not affordable so the, the further digitalization and the, the role of several actors I'm thinking about Facebook um, who you know is setting up a big cable uh, project uh, but you know both state and non-state actors, it will be interesting to see how they interact and how this comes, you know, in, into play. Um, so, and, and finally, I will just say it would be an, one of the next development will be, and it's already the case, is the assertiveness of several African leaders. We have, the African leadership today is very different from uh, 20 years ago. You know, so that's why I always think that it's important to recenter Africa and African agency in analyzing how global, uh, how changing global politics take place on the continent. Thank you very much. Uh, Elizabeth, very few um, words. Yeah, um, I think let me refer to the normative uh, dimensions in terms of trends. And one of the things that I think uh, might emerge in this contestation, this growing contestation, is uh, what to do with human rights, democracy, governance, good governance as we know it. And certainly I think African, uh, many Africans have fought long and hard uh, uh, for those uh, uh, principles and values. And I think it would be important for us to be strategically autonomous about both our values as well as our alignments as we go forward, because I think it is a battleground. It has been, and I think it's, it's, it's accelerating now, um, but I think we should also not look 
And sometimes there is that concern around looking for answers elsewhere. So whether it's about how you deal with the pandemic or how you deal with your economy. The Washington consensus was not ideal. I would argue the Beijing consensus is not ideal. And while a few years ago, China was not necessarily uh, pushing its models uh, uh, and saying, well, you know, every, everyone has his own path. I think there is a greater assertiveness on, uh, in that count, and I think it is for, for the continent to, to be very clear about what are important to it, the values that are important to it, uh, and what, uh, what models economically and politically work for it. Great. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that, that first, uh, the, there are so many uh, questions that have come through that I haven't been able to deal with here or to put to the panel, which is uh, I apologize to those who participated, and yet I hope that they've gotten a lot out of it. I certainly had, and I, what I do know is that this is a topic that has has legs, as they like to say. There's a lot of significant uh, issues we've begun to scratch the surface of, um, and uh, uh, we're, I'm very grateful, as is the LSE, to, to all of the colleagues, Aziz Falashada and Elizabeth, for contributing time to, to and Zooming on a day that maybe they had other things to do. So thank you very much. We enjoyed uh, the discussion a lot, and, and goodbye, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>